Tafman in Nederland, normaal ook spelend in het veld, maar licht geblesseerd, maar niet geblesseerd genoeg om deze mooie klap te geven. And welcome to yet another episode of Lines of the Bay Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me today is long-suffering producer of the show, host of five other shows at this point, and noted scholar of Britnology, Nate Bethay. Hello. Yeah, yeah actually, I'm, I'm only the host of uh, two other shows, but I do, I do produce a significant number of others. Um, I'm not going to say that I'm 100% on board with their, the, the concept of there being a me extended universe. <laughs> What I do find funny is that if you enter my name into um, into Google, the suggested results uh, include Nate Bethay Extended Universe, Nate Bethay <laughs> Net Worth, Nate Bethay Wife, and it's just sort of like, who the fuck is searching for this shit? All right, you want to ask ask me a question? Just at me, Christ, and you know I'll get back to you eventually. I I wonder how many people were looking up your net worth for that to pop up. <laughs> yeah, it's weird though, because I mean, like. Yeah, for one, for one, uh, I mean, <laughs> an intrepid person, if they wanted to, could just take a look at uh, at the, the 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 Patreon accounts of various shows. Now, that number would be inaccurate because it wouldn't represent how much I actually get paid. But it doesn't matter. I mean, people want to. Most people, when they do that, they do that because they want to get mad. Uh, and it's just like, all right, you know, whatever. Like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna flex. But if you want to knock yourself out, it, we've been. It's kind of crazy to think, but we've been working together for almost four years now. Um, yeah, it's and been a while. This is your first time on the show. <laughs> well, no, because uh, I cut myself in a couple of times to oh, that complain about count. your pronunciation <laughs> of French words. Uh, but yeah, this is my first time appearing. I mean, if you want to be weirder, Francis and I have been podcasting for over five years now. We've never met in person. That's true. That's true. Uh, I mean, I, I've met Shocks uh, in real life. He came to Washington uh, when we. I think that's actually before we started working together. And obviously, like the first three years of this podcast was all me and Nick recording in person. So, yeah. <laughs> in my case, obviously, I was in New York, Francis in St. Louis. And, um, and then I moved here to the UK. And I mean, I haven't, uh, I'm now over two years since I've even been back to America at all, uh, just because of some events that have happened in the world. So, uh, I don't know if I could call myself an expert on Britonology, but I am definitely immersed in Britain on a regular basis since I, I haven't been able to escape this fucking island. Um, I have not left Britain since uh, we got back from that trip. Um, I've so only sorry. left London like three times uh, since that also. So um, yeah, if you want to ask Britain questions or you want to talk about Britain content, I guess I'm your guy. Yeah, I, I would say you, you have a major in, in podcasting, minor in Britonology. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. And the reason why I brought you on here is other than the fact that I finally got you on the podcast is because we're going to talk about a guy who's quite honestly uniquely British. Um, All right. And he's a certain kind of guy. He's the, you know, the, the swashbuckling adventurer soldier that everybody likes to talk about. Those, you know, long since dead, though people keep trying to bring him back. Uh, these people just don't exist anymore. Um, yeah. Rory Stewart, the Tory MP and, um, the candidate for leader of the Tory party who did not win, or he also was a candidate for London mayor, tried to reinvent himself or rather portray himself as one of these people, you know, to, to revive this trope or this figure. But he's a pale imitation of it. Uh, I can't remember the names, but I, I'm telling you, anywhere you go, you will find these bizarre, just sort of, how do you put it? 
creatures of empire, if you will, who like <laughs> the guy who went to Afghanistan in the 1840s and then fell in love with Pashtun culture so much he decided to just become Pashtun. He learned Pashto. He fake converted to Islam. He made Hajj pretending to be <laughs> Afghan. Um, guys like that, you know, invariably you look at the Indian subcontinent, you'll find people in similar situations, you know, who did this for, uh, pick a culture, they've done it. Uh, pick a, pick a, a, a regional language of India, they've done it. Um, similarly, you'll find, you know, just a guy's like, oh, I mean, I had this, this idea that is very, very funny. That it's not out of the realm of possibilities that you might find like some English guy who fought in the war. And he was like, oh, I don't want people to, the censors or my comrades to read my private journal. So I'll just write it in Cantonese because I speak it fluently for some reason. <laughs> you know, like those kinds of guys did exist. I'm not saying they were good. Uh, they not, were, no. <laughs> they were always, they were almost always, you know, functionaries of empire. Uh, I'm not going to say that there was a one-to-one correlation with some weird sex proclivities, but that was often the case. However, Rory Stewart, like I said, is a watery imitation. He's like drinking a glass of milk when what you want is ice cream. Uh, he tried to be that by being the guy who learned Farsi and I think speaks some Arabic. He was like an, a, an administrator in Southern Iraq, uh, the immediate aftermath of the British part of the invasion in 2003. And then, but in 2002, if I remember correctly, he like walked across Afghanistan. Uh, what? His book is incredible. <laughs> Why? Because he, uh, he, he wanted to. Is he like the guy who tried to kill uh, Osama bin Laden with a broadsword? Yeah, he wanted to visit the Minaret of Jam. He wanted to visit these famous sites that he'd read about, and he spoke Farsi. So he um, he got some local, you know, fixers, and he walked overland uh, from yeah from the Iranian border to I believe to Jalalabad. Oh, uh, oh two though. So obviously, like, it was different time. Um, true, true. His book's amazing because you can read it and learn nothing about Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, he sounds interesting, but he's actually just like a you know total dyed in the wool Tory. Uh, who just affects that sort of, you know, um, the demeanor of what you might call the sort of uh, trying to seem open-minded imperial administrator who is actually just at, at his core a Tory and very, very British. And for American listeners or people not familiar with the United Kingdom, uh, Tory means something very different in American history. It means loyalist in the Revolutionary War. But in Britain, Tory is shorthand for someone who either supports or in uh, in Stuart's case, is literally a member of parliament for the conservative and unionist party of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. It's a long title to say, so they call are called the conservatives or the Tories for short. I don't know what the provenance of that term is, but it's just the one they use to describe them. So uh, that's that's who Rory Stewart is. That's pretty much who all imperial administrators are slash were as well, because in Britain, the Tories are basically the politics party um, and corruption is legal here. And it's a big joke, but uh, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, these guys all get their jobs like, oh, yeah, my cousin worked for the British East India Company or something. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and nowadays it's like, oh, he went to the, the same, uh, you know, privately funded school as me, you know, or what, what the British call public schools, or, you know, he went to the same college at Oxford or Cambridge as me, so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that hasn't really changed. That's pretty much this guy, too. Um, now, like we said, that like universally, all these guys pop out of like the British imperial era, uh, pre-India independence, I'll say. Um, now, granted, there are some that pop up during the Falklands War, and trust me, we'll talk about that eventually. Yep. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and like it's it's an era known for well-dressed psychopaths with very stupid names, and we will be talking about one that is no different. And his full name is Allison Digby Tatham Warter. <laughs> there you have it. Now, generally, he goes by Digby, which I don't know if I'd pick that of his four names, but we'll go with that. Um, 
But Digby was born to an incredibly wealthy family in May of 1917. And when I say wealthy, I mean not just like old money, but ancient old money. Uh, yes. I, f- I found records online that date his family to an incredibly, incredibly rich Saxon royalty family. Um, yeah. And this is made very easy for me because his family keeps a website up to this day that charts the entire family history of the Tathams of County Durham. Uh, that maps 120 different pages of people dating back to the 1300s. Um, and uh, this website looks like it was just freshly transferred over from like an angel fire server or something. It's been around a yeah, while. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, something that's very interesting about that is because you're from County Durham. Durham is in the far north of England. It's it's near the Scottish border. And so it's funny because when you encounter people like that, in, I've had these conversations with people who are from different regions of, of the United Kingdom, different parts of England. And one of the points they make is that it's very interesting to encounter um, northern aristocrats because like you're describing this person, I presume if you were to be able to visit him in while he was still alive or if he lived long enough to have his voice recorded, would probably sound... You know, just like wealthy Southerners, you know, poshos from the South who, you know, sound like they learned English from a parrot that lived 300 years ago. But the thing is, the, his accent would not mark him as someone from the North. Interesting. These people lived in completely sequestered sort of their, their lives, their social lives, their upbringings, et cetera, were, were all in keeping with the sort of the, the tendencies of the incredibly upper class, you know, strata of society in, in the United Kingdom. And so Durham, to your average person from the United Kingdom, someone from Durham is going to sound like someone from Durham. It's a very distinct accent. Northern accents are, are, are very, very strong uh, compared to Southern accents. I mean, obviously, what Americans are used to is a kind, is kind of like received pronunciation, broadcast British English, but that's a, that's a Southern English accent. That's a kind of Southern English accent. And Northern accents are very, very distinct. Uh, these guys wouldn't have them because they're raised in these like sort of hermetically sealed fiefdoms, you know, where they, they are taught the right accents and all the different manners and so on and so forth. And uh, yeah, that, and oftentimes, yes, like you just described, they have family lineages and holdings, you know, ancestral lands, et cetera, that go back hundreds, if not thousands of years, or at least a thousand years. And um, oftentimes, sometimes they're broke, like their family doesn't have any income, but they still have the, you know, the manor house and the, the lands and so on and so forth and the, the townhouse and the city and whatnot. But Oftentimes, and I think before the war, before World War II, it was more common to have you know people who would they'd still have, um, I mean like like a Wuthering Heights style situation in which like you know there's the owner and then there's like the people who just live and work on the land with their families like that that is a real thing. It, it's changed a bit in terms of like the sort of surf adjacent people on the land, but in terms of the titles, the holdings, et cetera, that's all still there. Yeah, it. it- I tried to see what his family did, but literally the only thing that's noted about his dad, who we'll talk a little bit about, is just like he owned vast amounts of land in the north. Like, yeah, uh-huh, but how did he get that? Like nobody nobody kept track of that. It's just been in the family yeah. for so long. Uh that's just what Yeah, they I mean do. that would imply that his family his family were I mean, I, I my sort of off the cuff guess here is that his family were barons, you know, in the time, you know, prior to the consolidation of England. Probably. And so, because England wasn't one country, you know, until relatively recently or more recently, you had, you know, individual kingdoms, and I couldn't name all of them, but prior to the annexation or sort of amalgamation of England and Wales in, I believe, the 13th or 14th century, um, 
it was even more broken up. But even you know, prior to the 1600s, or I believe the either 15 or 1600s, you still had these disparate kingdoms, and that's why you'd have you know the 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 the, the you know the troops loyal to the Duke of York attacking <laughs> London and sacking it or laying siege or stuff like that. You know, the War of the Roses stuff like that. Like England wasn't much like. You know, there was a time when Japan was basically just warring fiefdoms and then it was consolidated. The same thing happened in England. And so England is like this coherent whole wasn't a thing. And when someone's got ancestral lands, et cetera, you know, that date back that far, chances are really good that those are baronial lands and that their their family were, you know, sort of the 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 the, the local heavies to use a, an American term. Yeah, and they they seem to continue to be that um all the way up until shit, World War Two, really. Um also, a really weird side note about this website. It has a username and password login system um, that leads me to believe there's some kind of forum function involved. Uh, and I tried to register for an account to see if I could hang out with the the, the County Durham folks, and, I, and unfortunately, I couldn't. Um, yeah. Well, I suppose you, when you registered under Knott's Hunter for 2069, <laughs> they probably got some ideas. Yeah. And for, unfortunately, that means I can't hang out with the Digby family reunion. Now, uh, like most British kids born in 1917, Digby's dad, Henry de Grey Tatham Warder, uh, had been a veteran of World War I. Uh, and like a lot of very rich, fancy boys uh, in, in England at the time, he purchased a commission in the hilariously named Artist Rifles. Um, and I wanted to kind of figure out how the hell a unit that we would both probably end up in ended up being formed. <laughs> um, and it ended up being formed in the mid 1800s for a reason about as stupid as its name. Back in the day, there's an Italian revolutionary named Felice Orsini uh, who had fled from uh, fled to Britain from France and became convinced that the French emperor and sometimes president Napoleon III was uh, the only thing standing in the way between uh, like Italian unification and independence. So he decided to blow him up. Um, so he, he shopped around England for a while to find a guy who could build a bomb that was also filled with mercury for some reason because it's the 1800s and things have to be as terrible as possible. Uh, he found a gun maker named Joseph Taylor, who is a local British guy, that built six different versions of the bomb. So Felice then went back to France to try to blow up the royal family while they were on their way to a play. Fucked it up, got arrested, and got his head cut off. Um, but France figured, because you know France and England have hated each other forever at this point, that since he came from England, because he, he actually kept his ticket uh, from the boat that he took in his pocket when he was captured. Not a very good criminal. Um, as well as like the bill of sales from the bombs, <laughs> which is incredible. Like if you're a gunsmith, I mean, I'm sure this has to be illegal in some capacity, just building bombs in your garage in London in the 1800s. But like, no, it, it was a tax receipt because I can claim it as an expense for my limited company. <laughs> my local revolutionary group will reimburse me if I bring back receipts. Yeah, fair enough. But. The the I like to think of the gunmaker like I have to write your receipt. I have no choice, even if I'm making you a mercury filled bomb. Uh, but of course, this led him right back to England, and the French made the somewhat logical conclusion that he was a British agent uh, sent to kill the emperor. Uh, th so this, of course, led to a bit of a diplomatic issue because they wanted Joseph Taylor, the guy who built the bombs, because they already got Felice and you know guillotined him. Uh, so. But British law of the day, conspiracy, which is what you know he was charged with, was only a misdemeanor, and a misdemeanor did not come with extradition, uh, despite the fact he was a 
conspiracist to murder the emperor of France um, because the charge of conspiracy to murder simply hadn't been invented yet. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so the the French were pretty pissed about this entire thing, but and then it ended up with the fall of Lord Palmerston's government and the fear that the French might actually just invade England over the whole thing, uh, mm-hmm. which spurred the creation of the volunteer movement, uh, which led to the creation of the artist rifles and other units like it. There's quite a few units like this that ended up all choking on their own lung fluid in the trenches of World War One after they got gassed. Um, the unit actually was started by an art student and was populated mostly by other art students for quite a while. At one point, it was commanded by famous British painters like Henry Wyndham Phillips and Frederick Layton, uh, who were pretty popular, I guess. I'm not, I'm not an, an art historian. I have no idea who these people are. I'm uh, just imagining Henry Scott too, commanding the regiment and all of the privates being like, why do we have to be naked all the time? <laughs> Uh, another small side note here. This this unit survived until after World War II, at which point it was disbanded. Uh, but then it was reformed as the 21st SAS Regiment for some reason, uh, which there is have it. which is still around. Yeah, they're the 21st SAS uh, Regiment in parentheses artists. I don't know why they decided <laughs> to keep that part. Um, that's that, that's the regiment that they created for Jimmy Savile. Oh fuck. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, Dag, uh, Digby's dad survived World War One, but was horribly wounded by a gas attack, which caused him lifelong health problems as poison gases want to do. Uh, he eventually died when Digby was 11 years old. Now, there's not a lot known about uh, Digby's inter years here. Uh, like, he just kind of falls off the map. Otherwise, we can assume that using his great wealth and privilege and family connections, he probably went to a lot of private schools, some of the best in the area. Now, I only assume this because he eventually slid his way right into Sandhurst, which his older brother had also done immediately before him. So there's just like just a pipeline. Um, He pretty much followed in his brother's footsteps all the way up until they both uh, commissioned into the army, which Digby did in in 1937. His brother became a tank officer, um, and uh, I believe he was in like the something Dragoons unit. Uh, Not important. But Digby was uh, commissioned to the unattached list of the Indian army. Now... For the people who are unaware, the unattached list means that while Digby was a military officer and technically an infantry officer, he wasn't actually in command of anything. Um, now, most people in the unattached list did things like clerical work, worked in the local farms department. They did like imperial administration. It's known that the longest person that stayed on the unattached list was actually a prison guard, which is terrifying. Um, and, and the Indian army at this point, like there's a British army in india and then there's the indian army they're separate even though it makes no fucking sense uh the officer corps of the indian army for quite a while was british people soldiers were indian uh there were also british non-commissioned officers it it was pretty confusing like he got his commission through one and would end up in the other uh and honestly his record around this time is really weird because even though he was attached to a light infantry unit of the British army he was commissioned into the in- into the Indian army which despite them being under the command of British people were two completely separate things so like he drew his paycheck from the British army but never worked for them <laughs> at least for a while gotcha. then he transferred to the British army because he wanted to stay in India uh the Indian army was being moved around a bit uh because he found a second side gig cuz remember he's unattached he doesn't actually have a job and his side gig was being a hunting guide for rich people. Um, it's noted he enjoyed fighting tigers, which is like like we like we talked about. It's very much like a a, a a weird adventure British guy thing to do. Like, yes, I learned three languages fluently and learned how to spear fight a tiger. 
Yeah. See, back in those days, you could do that sort of thing. Nowadays, all you can do is flights into international waters and combining ketamine with cocaine. <laughs> and now this this rich fail son has to go to Ibiza and do crimes he'll never be held accountable for. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why are these flights are all to the British Virgin Islands? Don't ask. <laughs> There's another second charter boat that goes somewhere else. It's not on the map. Um, yeah, North Sentinel Island. He's the reason <laughs> that they rejected modernity. Uh, he he also picked up a hell of a drinking problem, as most infantry uh, people are want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, a fellow officer said, "Quote: He is not so gifted when it came to handling alcohol, and was well known to getting into wild, drunken fist fights in the mess with men whom he regarded as friends at the time, but whose existence he would be utterly oblivious to in the following morning." Uh, now, to make this seem even funnier, Digby isn't like this jacked lad right he is about six foot four and rail skinny like he looks like he's a real charles de gaulle looking motherfucker yeah there's a certain kind of british aristocrat that just has bird bones whether they're five (laughs) four or six eight like they're just every now and again whether it's some kind of ministerial appointment or something involving the house of lords or some sort of cash for favors scandal in britain they'll have to post the photo of you know the malefactor involved and it's a, his official portrait from the house of lords or whatever and you look at that and you're sort of like that combination of facial features shouldn't exist like that looks like you took matt smith playing prince philip in the crown and, and zapped him with a gun that shrinks features and also converts him to half troll for some reason <laughs> like it's just it is a very, very strange thing. And I recognize, and I'm saying this as someone who has a bit of, you might call it, unconventional combination of facial features. It's still <laughs> really, really weird. Ah, I see you've, you've been titled. Time to hit you with the DNA destroying ray that makes your facial bones <laughs> melt. Well, you'll find that uh, marrying first cousins for a thousand years has no problem. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway... Oh, God. Uh, After recording an entire episode about Charles II, I have no want to talk about people in breeding ever again. (laughs) Oh, man. I can't wait to edit that one. God, that's (laughs) such a strange story. The part where he exhumes his wife to look at her corpse and cry about it. Like, he's just, ugh, he's so weird. Anyway, I'll let you continue. Now, his time seemed even sweeter in India because World War II started uh, a couple years later, and uh, he just kind of sat there in India, leading rich people on trips to stab pigs with spears or occasionally shoot tigers. He wouldn't leave service in India until 1942, when his brother John was killed during the Second Battle of El Alamein, and uh, he requested a transfer to the Parachute Regiment, noted psychopaths, uh, and he fit in great, actually. Um, now, I don't know a lot about British paras other than uh, don't they play a game where they have to box and not dodge being punched in the face? Yes, (laughs) I would say the paras and I'm not speaking from like super up close and personal experience here, but everything that I've read, heard, etc. encountered from speaking to people who are in the paras is that it's probably a closer analog to being in Ranger Regiment, but with the sort of culture of like the absolute most intense marine US Marine Corps barracks. Like imagine that level of just nonstop hazing and shit, but in a unit that's as hard to get into as it is to get into the Ranger Regiment in the US Army. Oh, so it's a cult. It's not as easy as becoming a paratrooper in the US Army where it's just like, oh, you enlist in like if you can pass airborne school, which is not really that hard, let's be honest, uh, you are a paratrooper. Uh, it's way more selective than that. It's it, I would say their 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 program to become a para is like going to rip if you're an enlisted ranger. Um, oh, okay. And, uh, 
yeah. So it's it is, a, and I mean, I don't know what it was like in World War II, but I mean, in the in the modern day, it's it's far more like that. And I think that culture more or less was there before, and and obviously remains. I uh, uh, see. I did a speed run, and I ended up in eighty second airborne without ever doing any kind of special school. So suck it. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you. Our brigade was sent to Afghanistan, and they were getting ready to deploy us, or like. Post NTC, they were getting ready to deploy us, and we were still so undermanned. They're like, "Fuck it!" They just diverted an entire basic training class that was supposed to go to Fort Hood to us. So, like a third of our brigade wasn't airborne qualified. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened to me. <laughs> yeah, we were we were an airborne brigade, but yeah, you know, that's just how it goes. So, I mean, it doesn't really. It's not like we were doing fucking combat jumps in Afghanistan. Right. I know my unit wanted to, but there was no reason. No, of course, uh, they all want to. <laughs> In case you're wondering why, if you're not a U.S. Army veteran, you don't know why. It's because you get a, an extra special sweet badge if you do a jump in combat that you can only get from doing a jump in combat. And so the U.S. Army being the most badge-hungry, flare-wearing ass people in the entire Department of Defense really, really want like the coveted badge. And it's not a badge you can get on the wait list to go to a school for. Like You have to jump in combat. So yes, it's that's legitimately a thing. It's to get a mustard stain or a little combat star on your airborne wings. And, and it's not even like getting a cab or a CIB, which, you know, when we were in was quite literally signing up for a school day, but it was deployment and you would get one eventually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Although hilariously, my unit was part of the era where they clamped down on it that you had to actually be in a combat action. So I got my CIB towards the end of the deployment. I knew a lot of guys who didn't get theirs because oh, man. they just weren't they weren't in in contact ever. Um, and I mean, the incident where I got in contact also was like the worst day of my life. So yeah, it's like, sweet. I got a fucking badge. I get to get to celebrate that every December 11th. It's like, hey, man, you got a sick fucking badge. Oh, yeah. By the way, they told you that there was a medical technicality why you couldn't medevac a child who then died. Yeah, it's uh, sorry about the worst traumatic experience of your life. Here, have yeah. a very small piece of plastic. Yeah, I was going to say, sorry about the hope <laughs> diamond of moral injury. But here's this sweet fucking <laughs> rifle in a box. Fuck. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, at this point, Digby was actually the last kid in his family to make his way to the war. Despite the fact it had been going on for years, his sister Kit, again, I'm sure that's a nickname. It's a very normal British nickname from what As I Milo would say, in a, in a posh family, the, the dogs have girls' names and the girls have dogs' names. <laughs> so his sister's name was probably Kit and their dog's name was probably Sally. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. And they, those, they had like eight dogs. All of them hunt foxes. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, he's from Durham. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> premium fucking fox knots territory. Uh, his sister Kit had been awarded the French War Cross, uh, which I translate into English so Nate doesn't make fun of me, while serving in the hat. No, you should say it, Joe. You should say <laughs> I'm it. I'm not going to do it. Say, you should say quite a gear, Joe. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Now, while serving in the Hatfield Spears Ambulance Unit of the Western Desert Campaign, uh, which is like a, uh, almost like a non-profit uh, charity that was started up and then deployed with the military. But Yeah, well, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. All right, so here's the thing I'm going to say, though. Like... Now, I'm not, I'm not saying any disrespect here, and I, 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 I absolutely see the contributions of women and men, you know, people, non-binary people, uh, as equal when it comes to, you know, serving in a dangerous situation. But, like, this was obviously an era of extraordinary, like, rigidly enforced gender roles and norms. Sure. And there was absolutely an expectation in those days, sort of like what one does as a, you know, an infantry or a military officer as a, as a male. And so you're basically saying that like his sister saw combat before he did because he was just fucking chinning it up in in India. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, like, this is the era of like I would make fun of him, but that's even more British somehow. 
Honestly, like, I respect this hustle. This is the only part I'll say that about is like, like, if you can write up all of World War II while like just across the border of the actual war and not actually have to do anything like Because Burma was a fucking hell on earth at that time. Right. I mean, it was absolutely insane. Yeah. So was Hong Kong. So was Singapore. Like, those are not that far, relatively speaking. And he was attached to a unit that actually left India, the the Oxen Bucks uh, light infantry unit that was pivoted away from India and up to war. And somehow he's just like, no, I'm going to stay here, bro. And they're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he's basically, he, he was basically like the, the U.S. Army liaison to Manas Air Base in Kyrgyzstan, except if it had like better weather and just like lots of opportunities for alcohol and sex. Less malaria, I think. Uh, but there's a... Uh, there's, it seemed to be the one thing that finally motivated him to go was his brother dying. Um, and I don't think that there's any like familial pressure of like, you need to go to war now, but like he didn't really, he didn't really like write anything that he was, Oh no, my brother died. I have to go get vengeance or whatever. But like, that really does seem to be what happened uh, on his own. Not to mention his sister made him look bad. By getting, by getting a war cross. Uh, yeah, it's like if there's three kids, one, you know, one brother and one sister, and both of them have been in the shit for real, and you've just been like, yeah, I know how to make a really great gin and tonic. Like, you're going to have to, you know, face up to your lack of action at some point. Yeah, if he was 100 years before, someone had given him a white feather at this point. Um, <laughs> uh, now, he went off to uh, Lincolnshire for training, and he became known as... An all-around weird fucking guy. Uh, shocker, I know. Uh, and this is... Remember, he's an officer, so he's surrounded, around, uh, surrounded by people like him. F- same upbringings and stuff. Even they thought he was weird. Um, but everybody began to like him because he had an endless amount of stories about... Remember, fighting tigers in India. And uh, he endeared himself to other infantry and para-officers by getting way too drunk and getting in fistfights. At one point, he stole an American plane and flew all of his company officers and friends to London for a party. Uh, no, nobody's entirely <laughs> I mean, sure where he learned how to fly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> See, that was just the shit you could do back in those days. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, you you uh, you also could be executed by firing squad. But small detail, you, you, you know. I was gonna say, you know, so see, that's that, that that that's the freewheeling nature of the European theory of operations. If you're Eddie Slovak, you just get shot to prove a point. If you're this guy, you can steal a plane, and people just be like, oh. Good show, old chap. Yeah, if Eddie Slovak was an officer who committed grand theft plane, he would have been like, give that man, <laughs> <laughs> give that man a victorious cross. Uh, exactly. But unfortunately for Eddie, he was a poor motherfucker from Detroit, uh, and he cut the wall. Um, now, after training, he, he completed uh, paratro- paratrooper school and was made a company commander of A Company, 2nd Parachute Battalion. Uh, and he quickly set himself apart from his peers, but not for being like an, an overly great officer for anything uh, or anything, but for he was very, he had weird tendencies. He was a strange guy. Uh, one of the strange... We're talking just like eccentricity. We're talking some sex things. What are we talking about? I'll say uh, the, definitely the first, not the second that I've, I've ever read anything. I don't think I can get sued by, by saying anything by his family. I mean, it's, it's just very funny that it's not because th- th- this was such a common thing that the British... We've talked about this on, on Trash Future before. Alice finds this particularly funny. But in, I believe, the 19th century, the British, it, it, as as sort of science existed in that day hypothesize the existence of uh, an affliction within certain 
boundaries of latitudes towards the tropics they called the sotatic zone which they believed the weather made you gay because this was and particularly not just gay but also that it made you um attracted to 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 much younger people and well i'm not saying overtly being a pedophile we're talking about like some 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 cringe age inappropriate relationship kind of stuff happening here uh and and some of this was to hypothesize to explain uh, the prevalence of, let's say, sexualized coming of age rituals in you know indigenous societies, but mostly, as I understand it, it was meant to explain why colonial administrators went went abroad, went to the tropics, and then uh, developed a reputation for nonsing. And so, literally, they called it. They they they, they described it. There's just within these boundaries of latitude, you will get turned gay. Um, so the fact that he didn't that 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 the the harsh son of India did not. Convert him. It's weird that they built the entirety of uh, of Buckingham Palace on one of those zones. It's funny. It's weird how this this entire country is one big grooming gang. But you know what? That's a topic for another day. Uh, I don't like. I, I didn't see anything. Nobody ever wrote anything weird about him in in regards to his conduct in India, his like sexual that. Yeah. proclivities and whatnot. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, right? Like like either it's been scrubbed from history, and he or he was discreet. Or it just wasn't. I mean, like I said, it, it's it was a thing, and I think more than anything else, like jokes aside, the reason why it happened was because more than anything else was because there was this really disgusting notion that like, well, it wasn't a crime if you were victimizing people who weren't white and who weren't British oh, citizens. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's and how that's they just, get away with most the of their violence as well. And that's what happens on, for example, in native territories in Alaska and America today. Like, you know, when you hear stories of, you know, uh, non-native cops who go there and have a reputation in the village, like, oh yeah, it's the cop who molests people. Like, people that 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 impunity is so tied up in a kind of colonial mindset. And like, oh, yeah. yeah. That that the the British the British biggest empire in history. So I mean that shit was happening, and uh, and there's plenty of plenty of evidence for it. But I guess in this guy's case, not not so much evidence in his case that uh, that it would be it would make it into historical record. I I think that's possible as well as because of what we'll talk about. Any weird any funny business would have been scrubbed because he is uh, something of a national hero despite the fact they never gave him a victorious cross uh yeah yeah so is so is bernard montgomery who uh wrote love letters to a 12 year old boy for some reason what? i can't tell you why All oh right. my god well, yes <laughs> subject matter for another episode but uh monty whew, there's some stuff going on there good thing that uh we're talking about market garden in this episode um oh fucking hell yeah so he's triumphed yeah, that'll have to be a series unto its own at some point. Um, but one of the weirdest things that uh, Digby made his soldiers do was ignore radios um, because he simply didn't trust them. Uh, and and you voices want, can't travel that far naturally. That's devil work. You want, you want to know what he came up with? Uh, so he... He was a bit of a history nerd. I think he majored in history in history in in college. Um, like God, nothing is worse than the fucking the historian in charge of military shit. It was like we're just doing semaphore from a hot air balloon for some reason. Bugles. <laughs> he, he did bugles, uh, specifically from a British Army manual that dated back to Waterloo. <laughs> I mean, there's a part of it's like okay, well, if it's uncrackable, then hell yeah. But I, at the same time, if it's if it's super inconvenient, then you know that that's kind of dumb. Well, I'll, I'll stay agnostic. Yeah, I mean, inconvenient to the extent. I'll I'll say this: he proves me wrong. But it's inconvenient to the extent you suddenly have to teach a whole bunch of Paris how to play the fucking bugle. Um, yeah, exactly. And the Brit and the Germans certainly aren't going to know like their bugle calls or whatever. 
That's very funny that we had wind talkers in the Pacific Theater and the, the British managed the same thing with esoteric horn noises. <laughs> it's because it's their uh, indigenous language. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> uh, Digby was also notoriously forgetful, and this is where uh, one of the more famous things about him started. Um, now, there's a thing called challenge and passwords. Nate and I are familiar with it. Some of our listeners mm-hmm. might be. When you're approaching... A friendly position, someone yells out a challenge, and you give them the password so you don't get vented by a, a, a sleep-deprived private with a and you, gun. you probably still will in World War II, but yes, yes, the whole point is, yeah, <laughs> if you're familiar with, you've watched Band of Brothers when they're always saying, like, flash, thunder, yeah. that the challenge is flash, the, the response or, is, or the password is, is thunder. And the reason they picked that is because saying th like thunder is extremely challenging for German speakers, and so they thought that that would give it away. A, a shibboleth, if you will, that they they would uh, they would mispronounce it, and thus it would be obvious they were faking. We had challenge and passwords in Afghanistan, and I actually forgot them on the regular. So when everybody would yell the challenge, I'd be like, "Shut the fuck up!" They're like, "Oh, it's uh, Kasabian." <laughs> oh man, Joe, I don't want to derail this episode because, but I want to tell you a quick story. When I was in Afghanistan, I encountered challenge and password in a really dramatic way, and uh, came close to a very un- unpleasant end except for a last-minute intervention that, that may have saved my life or certainly saved me getting shot shot at, if not directly shot, from 10 feet away by a PKM. And that was we went to a checkpoint, uh, not realizing the people we needed to get from the checkpoint were, had already been brought into a different base. And uh, the guards freaked out when we, they saw silhouettes of people approaching and racked the PKM and screamed at us in Dari and said, you know, what's the fucking password? What's the fucking password? And my interpreters were trying to communicate with them and saying, like, we're we're friendly, we're American, we're Brafgan. Like, what, what are you doing? Like, this is just, we're friendly. And the guy kept saying, what's the fucking password? And screaming at them. And he said, I'm going to count down three, two, one. If you don't give me the password by the time I count one, I'm firing. And he goes, three, two. And I guess some of the way he said two was very obviously Uzbek. And one of the A&P that we had randomly brought with us from the checkpoint, like we left the A&P checkpoint and the guy was like, hey, take some of my guys with me, with you. So you're, you know, you got A&P with you. And one of them was Uzbek, and he immediately heard that, and he started yammering at this guy in Uzbek. It was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> and I guess the fact that he also spoke Uzbek, the guy was like, oh, oh, my bad. Sorry, guys. I'm like, yeah, yeah, big misunderstanding. But like straight up had the weapon on fire, like basically not quite at the high ready, but very close to it, like thinking, ah, this shit's about to go down for real. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm literally about to get in a firefight with the friendly side because these guys are scared of the dark. And uh, so yeah, challenge and password. I can only imagine in World War II when you think about these sort of Pacific theater, people getting their throats cut in their foxholes or right. in, you know, the European theater where it's just like, like they're just, just randomly getting hit by fucking one, five, five rounds. How, how freaked out people were. So this is, this was serious business. Oh, Sorry was, for the no, derail. Very serious. And, you know, thankfully for you, uh, as someone who trained Afghan cops, you probably would have missed anyway. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. That PKM was fucking close. That racking sound. You, you, you probably know this. Some of our listeners who are veterans know this. That if you want to scare the fuck out of someone like me, the most thing you can do is make a metal racking sound and yell "Trish." <laughs> that. Oh my fucking god! How many times walking around a base is "Trish"? Like fucking just people screaming at you, and you're like. I'm friendly. I can't even remember how to say friendly in uh, in Dari, but like, ugh. this is why I made really good friends with my interpreter. Just <laughs> say dark weather, scary violence, lots and lots of hash, and Soviet weapons. Not a great combination. <laughs> uh, sounds like a fucking party as long as it's the right country. Um, <sighs> yeah. Now, like I said, Digby is super forgetful. He never remembered the password. So 
rather than, I don't know, writing them down, which I know you're not supposed to do either. Um, and, or I don't know, come up with some kind of bugle related call to get his way through. He did what he became probably the most famous for. He started carrying an umbrella. Now, Ah. His big brain explanation for this while swinging a goddamn umbrella around the battlefield uh, is nobody would bother to ask him a password because, quote, it would be quite obvious to anybody uh, that a bloody fool carrying the umbrella could only be an Englishman. Sure. I mean, <laughs> fair enough. But now I'm just imagining, like, if there's any culture on this planet that would create a specialized unit for a really, really stupid purpose just to own the British in one particular way would be the Germans. Yes, uh, they, have sp- they have very specific uh, guns that fire rain that is too heavy for the umbrella to stop. Um, <laughs> it, it, I should note that because he's carrying an umbrella, he can't carry a rifle, so he's only carrying a umbrella and a sidearm. Uh which I guess back in the day, there's still uh, some old culture where an, an officer wouldn't, ha- wouldn't need to carry a rifle, but most para officers did. He did not. Um, now, the second battalion, and specifically Digby's A Company, was chosen to be the lead element of one of the more botched Allied operations in the entire Second World War, Operation Market Garden. Uh, now. In a, in a nutshell, it was one giant leap to bypass the Siegfried line and end the war much earlier than uh, than if it wouldn't have succeeded, which it didn't. Some people say up to a year earlier, and I don't really believe that. Uh, but, you know, they failed. Uh, we will eventually do an entire series on this operation uh, that is for some reason still up for debate by old white men who probably watched the History Channel around the same time I did when I was a kid on whether this actually succeeded or not. Well, as they say in the, 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 the dramatic climax of the most influential movie on the topic, it is simply just that bridge. It's so far. Uh, Digby is in that movie, uh, though they do not give him the name Digby Tatum Mortar. Uh, if you noticed uh, in the background of that movie, uh, and I believe he's played by Robert Duvall or something like that. There's a guy in a bowler hat with an umbrella. That's Digby. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, I don't recall, but I think Milo brought that up when we did an episode about a bridge too far. Um, yeah, it's, it's very funny. I mean, I guess having Robert Duvall play an English guy is no worse than having Gene Hackman play the Polish colonel. So I mean, like, whatever. Outstanding. Yeah. Uh, Gene Hackman wits. Um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm down for any movie that just has Elliot Gould with a cigar in his mouth nonstop, just running around and yelling. Yeah, I mean, that's how I assume how he just goes about his business. Um, now, anyone familiar with Market Garden probably knows what this means. Digby led his company and his battalion towards Arnhem Bridge with the goal of taking and holding it for what they thought might be 48 hours until an armored relief column could punch through and reinforce their position. Now, on September 17th, 1944, just before 3 p.m., Digby and his men parachuted into Holland, landing their designated troop zone. Uh, kind of. Uh, they ended up way too far away from the bridge, around seven miles away. Um, and, uh, now that doesn't sound super long to anybody who's just plotting things over a distance, but seven miles of fighting is way too long, uh, to secure a bridge. Um, now the first part of the mission went according to the plan, uh, that they were sticking to residential gardens and backyards rather than main streets to like sneak around the Germans, which somehow worked. I I guess the Germans, uh, the German military in the area was working on like Metal Gear Solid uh, type enemy, uh, 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 like finding where enemies are. They only can see in a specific cone. Uh, and if you go around them, they can't see you. Uh, now, the, the company snuck past most of the opposition unharmed. There were some small firefights, 
But uh, by the time they capture the northern end of the Arnhem Bridge at 8 p.m., things have gone shockingly well, at least as far as Market Garden goes. With one major flaw, none of the radios worked. Nope. Uh, yeah, this is for a lot of different reasons, uh, and the British were studying exactly why their radios failed all the way up until 2006. So, um, now I will go, I found an entire uh, like radio nerd forum thing that went in depth of how the radios actually failed, and I will use that at a later time when we actually cover this in depth. But long story short, the radio put out... Uh, uh, too low of power to cover the distances that they needed to use. Like the, the, the specific kind of radio was simply not powerful enough. Um, and also some of them had a really weird flaw where they would just eat through their battery three times faster than they should have. So, Oh, you mean, you mean ciphertext frequency hop? <laughs> so like even the radios that would work in the immediate vicinity didn't after like three hours. Um, now, the advance to take Arnhem was only really able to go forward because Digby and his fucking bugles <laughs> that worked. That's so funny. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's, that's, that's insane, but yeah, there, there you have it. It was, it was a combination of Digby's bugles and a system of runners because we had apparently jumped back in time about 100 years. Um, now, somehow a weird British man in 1944, armed with only a pistol, an umbrella, and a small corps of buglers, managed to lead a successful airborne assault across the fortified German position. Um, sure. History's stupid sometimes. Um, again, I don't know how. This man did not get a victorious cross. Yeah, but it's weird because it's like, you don't want the guy who insists on, on using horns for propriety reasons to be correct. That's the guy you don't want to see be right. You're like, no, fuck that guy. He shouldn't get to be right. But in this case, he, he absolutely was. Like, that's basically like, uh, no, we're we're not we're not going to use the the tax sat. We uh we need to use smoke signals. And then like you know the, the a fucking meteor knocks the satellites out of the sky and it winds up working. Everyone's going to hate you even if they're glad they didn't die. <laughs> right. Like I, I I'm glad you thought of it, but goddamn it, I I'm not going to give you the props. Uh. Especially because yeah, it's like thank thank you for leading us to victory of some sorts. Also, fuck off, nerd. <laughs> Fucking horn nerd. Uh, and like, there's a there's a like a, a specific kind of reason. Like you know you have fail safes and and stuff like that. But his thing was like he just didn't trust radios. So like if someone's like what what was your brilliant plan? Why did you think of using horns? I just don't trust technology. Oh, thank you, Captain uh, Fucking Unabomber. Um, <laughs> Uh, also, by this time, he did get promoted to major. So, like, good for him. Um, now, uh, they couldn't cross the bridge, however, because their path had been blocked by burning trucks, and they began to get hit with mortar fire fired uh, from the Germans who managed to get their shit together. So, instead of crossing it, they hunkered down and waited for backup, once again thinking the reinforcements in the form of an armored column would only be a short way away. The British paratroopers are about to learn the fun flaws of a plan like Market Garden, like, say, not having enough planes for all the paratroopers at once and planning an entire offensive around the use of one single road. You know, I guess in retrospect, I guess Monty was too busy writing to his 12-year-old boyfriend. Um, <laughs> fuck's sake. Soon, uh, an army of children and unmotivated conscripts the British thought they would be fighting uh, in Arnhem revealed themselves to actually be a veteran SS unit who had been fighting since D-Day. And their commander, Field Marshal Walter Modell, a hardcore Nazi and talented defensive commander, was stationed in the town of Arnhem itself. Uh, so, uh. <laughs> whoops. Uh, and this wasn't like whoops. 
the, the Germans weren't like, I have a feeling there's going to be an air, uh, airborne uh, assault coming. So we need to plan like they had just got there. It was completely by chance. Um, it was he was uh, modal was in the middle of lunch when people said British people were raining from the sky. So like he had no idea this is coming, but the British were assuming they're uh, coming up like against reserve units. Which they were. There was like a reserve unit there, and it would have been by itself if they would have hit like a week before. Um, so, as the SS began to attack the British positions at Arnhem Bridge, Digby launched into action. And by action, I mean he somehow re- acquired a bowler hat from a nearby shop and was ordering men to uh, like move ammunition around from one position to another using shopping carts. <laughs> okay. Um, like people said that he was walking around this firefight, which involved like a company's worth of tanks, hundreds of men uh, without ever seeking cover uh, while yelling at other people to get cover. Oh, while twirling his umbrella, by the way. Um, like it's not noted that he ever actually shot at anybody. Um, I mean, there's something that's insane. That's incredible. But also it's just sort of like uh, we talked about this in uh, the Falklands, somebody like H Jones, where it's just like, they love these monumental acts of sort of conspicuous heroism or gallantry in the face of fire. But in H. Jones's case, he just got killed basically hand delivering a grenade into a bunker on East Falkland. He was the battalion commander. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is the battalion commander job. doing? <laughs> what exactly? You kind of have a more important job as a battalion commander than being the guy to hit the foxhole. But he's like, no, I will do this. And then he died. So, you know, once again, this kind of thing, like, like walking around with your umbrella, you know, cheering the men and whatnot, but like if you get domed, then, well, they're kind of out there, company commander. Occasionally your battalion commander, like in their OER, it's not like you, in fact, did suicide bomb an enemy machine gun position. Uh, We recommend you for posthumous promotion. Um, So, at one point, and this happened quite a few times, um, uh, Digby would notice someone stranded out in the open, pinned down by enemy fire, and he would just go out there and push them behind cover while walking. He never broke into a run. Like he just is calmly chilling. Um, and one case, and you said this man was like six, four too. So yes. it's also like, uh, <laughs> he's not I a small if, target. If the Germans just described, decided to, to adopt the a chivalric code or if there was really bad shots, it reminds me a lot of, um, on sword beach, there was a, a bagpiper, uh, who came to, came to shore playing the pipes. Um, and, after the battle was over, the Germans are like, well, we didn't shoot at him because we thought he lost his fucking mind. Like, we thought he was insane. So, like, we didn't shoot at him. And I think this might Fair be enough. the same thing. Um, there's a man, there, there, there's a gigantic skinny man in a bowler hat and umbrellas walking around the battlefield. Like, don't shoot the crazy guy. That's unsporting. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but in one case is the battalion chaplain, a guy named Father Egan, uh, and Digby sprinted up to his aid and sheltered him by unfurling his umbrella and then guided him to safety uttering the words don't worry padre i've got an umbrella (laughs) um in another situation a lieutenant named pat barnett rightfully questioned why in the fuck you'd be using an umbrella at a time like this digby replied oh my goodness pat what if it rains (laughs) um I, I think he uh, legitimately may have lost his mind because remember this is the first time Digby's ever been in combat. <laughs> so like I think he may have just broken. Yeah, I mean there's a part of me that's like when you think about what the people who were in Market Garden experienced, like there there were, you know, 
there are plenty of other examples of of similarly awful conditions, but it's still you know pretty atrocious given like what they had versus what they were up against. And you know I can see that happening. It would be like you know if you uh, you'd been the the you know the, the three hundred and fifty six people's shoe polish regiment <laughs> command you know fucking polishing boots to the rear in Vladivostok and they're like hey uh we have a special mission for you can you go take a line command at Stalingrad like you might have a bit of a change of venue and your mental health might uh, reflect that so yeah man I mean that sucks <laughs> yeah but it's funny it's also just like there's a part of me that that, that thinks. Well, it worked, so it adds to this mythos of the sort of British character, whereas like, I can imagine this going bad so many ways, and people wouldn't remember to just be that asshole who died when he got shot when he was carrying an umbrella. <laughs> right. Like, 20 years from now, it's like, remember that fucking idiot who was carrying an umbrella that got domed? Yeah. What was his name? Uh, I don't remember. I don't know. He sucked. Uh, but, I mean, even if Digby had lost his mind, he wasn't like, he didn't put himself out of the fight. He was wounded and didn't really seem to care. Um, at one point, a panzer column burst through British lines and Digby personally let a counter bayonet charge to push them back, which somehow worked. Uh, still armed with only a pistol and an umbrella, he rushed up to a German armored car and jammed the umbrella through the driver's vision slit, stabbing out his fucking eye and stopping them for long enough for paratroopers to swarm the uh, armored car and shoot the people inside. <laughs> but, but he also had a sidearm. Couldn't he have just put a gun through the same slit, whatever you know what listen if you if you roll with it roll with it if if you know you got one in the bag like you're going for the umbrella kill (laughs) like (laughs) i'm gonna be the first motherfucker with confirmed armored kill with an umbrella um there it is yeah uh digby and his men held out for four days before they finally ran out of ammo at which point their radios decided to work in short bursts and learn that for the first time there was no relief coming uh, they were on their own. They were fucked. So knowing that nobody was coming for them and they were surrounded, cut off and unable to retreat, he radioed, quote, out of ammunition, God save the king. And then he was captured. Sigh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, now, Digby actually didn't want to surrender. Uh, it was his battalion commander's decision uh, because, of course, he didn't. Right. He still had his umbrella. Now, he had been wounded in the fighting. Specifically, tra- uh, he caught shrapnel in his ass like Forrest Gump. And uh, the Germans dropped him off at a hospital, which was really not guarded. I think this is more of like a gentlemanly thing because he was an officer Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. because it was just like a local hospital uh, under the care of local um, uh, Dutch nurses and doctors. So, of course, he just jumped out of a nearby window and ran off into the Dutch countryside. Uh, He uh, he met with an English speaking Dutch woman who hit him and eventually met the leader of the local Dutch resistance, Dirk Vildboer. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, who he joined forces with. Uh, at this point, there were there was around two hundred people that had been left behind after Market Garden had failed, uh, hiding in woods and basements and attics and stuff, mostly being sheltered by the local Dutch population. Uh, and there's a lot of horrible um, payback that the Germans exacted against the Dutch for celebrating when the Allies landed in, in, in Holland. It was pretty gross. Mm-hmm. Not going to go mm-hmm. into it, but I didn't forget about that. Trust me, yeah. Dutch folks. Uh, so Digby went about trying to organize uh, them into guerrilla forces. Like His idea was like, well, we're in Holland. We might as well keep shooting Germans. But uh, this was quickly abandoned because uh, Dirk pointed out that if you started doing that, they would just take their anger out on, on Dutch people. You probably shouldn't do that. Yeah. Uh, so the mission quickly turned into an evacuation. But first, he'd have to find them all. 
Uh, and Dirk didn't know all these people, and these people probably wouldn't have trusted him. So Dirk forged Digby a Dutch identity card so he could get around. Now, this is a problem. Digby didn't speak Dutch or German. Uh, so they decided to get around this by simply noting in his identity card that he was a deaf mute. Um, so with this ironclad defense, he jumped on a bicycle and simply began riding around the, uh, the, ho- the, the Dutch countryside, picking up groups of soldiers and slowly getting them together. Uh, at, at one point, he was so dedicated to, uh, to his cover story that while riding his bike, he saw a German staff car stuck in a ditch on the side of the road and he helped the soldiers get them out of it. He also slept in the same uh, house, like a boarding house, as German officers were staying in. Uh, Jesus. No, at no point did anybody apparently question him. Uh, like, because, you know, you're, even if you are a deaf mute, he didn't understand Dutch or German either. So, like. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. So he sort of, he sort of could, could play the game. Yeah. Eventually, Digby planned and coordinated the evacuation of around 150 to 200 soldiers in Operation Pegasus. Now, Famously, this operation is shown in Band of Brothers, as paratroopers of various, various nationalities silently ferry over Brits and a few poles across a narrow part of a nearby river, uh, river near uh, via rubber dinghies. Um, at one point, their escape route was only 500 meters from a German machine gun nest, and somehow they simply did not see them. Uh, Band of Brothers makes this thing look like a whole lot hairier than it actually was. Uh, they just kind of floated out in the middle of the night, and the Germans barely saw them at all. Uh, there was a, a, an American unit on the other side of the river that started a firefight along the flank to draw the Germans away. But uh, there's only one casualty, and it was a guy who went missing. Uh, that was it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, now, like I said, somehow this guy did not get a victorious cross for any of this, but he did get a, a distinguished service order instead. Uh, but Digby's time fighting wars was not over, though World War II was over for him. At the end of World War II, he found himself in the Palestinian Mandate. Uh, now, this is normally why I say he did something terrible, but he wasn't there that long because he fucking hated it. Not for any ethical reasons, mind you. He thought the hunting sucked. So Very, yeah. very, yeah, posh English guy thing to think, but fair <laughs> enough. Yeah. So uh, he went to where the hunting was great. Let me, let me guess, someplace else in the British Empire where he could do atrocities. Nailed it. He went to Kenya. Oh, fuck God. <laughs> It gets worse than you can imagine. Let me guess. Let me guess. <laughs> is there are, are there were there probably some documents pertaining to his conduct against the Mau Mau that got dumped in the Indian Ocean? Oh no, they weren't dumped at all. They're they're still celebrated by his family. Um, uh, now, Whoops. at this point, he was out of service. He he purchased a huge tract of land in Kenya. Uh, like it's noted, it's two. It's quoted as two massive plantations. I don't I don't know the size of those, but the, the word plantation gives me unease. Um, uh. but then he was there as a colonial subject free from the military when the Mau Mau rebellion started. And, uh, if you thought that being a civilian would have kept him out of it, you were wrong. Uh, he purchased his own unit of mounted police made up of only local white farmers. And this is true. His local polo team, which he was the captain of. Uh, as one does, like a normal person. Yeah, uh, and the mounted police units of of the the British side of the Mau Mau rebellion did awful fucking things. Uh, just just terrible, like slash and burn shit. Uh, so Digby did all of that. Uh, it's not noted exactly what he did, but uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume that his private police unit, made up of local white people and polo players, did not in fact follow the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> Yeah, 
fair guess. <laughs> now, when he finally retired from doing war crimes, he settled down and created what is effectively the first modern tourist safari. Um, now, normally, rich people obviously would rent people like him to take him out onto, uh, onto land to shoot animals, but he had significantly more respect to animals than he did people, and he decided to create a a safari that instead you took pictures and this is a revolutionary idea and this is what he did um i guess after murdering a man with an umbrella and doing imperial war crimes in kenya he decided to take it easy on on animals which is you know that's something very very british uh i don't know if you know this but the royal society for the prevention of cruelty to children came about much later than the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And it actually came about sort of in disgust at the fact that it was so hard to get people to care about impoverished children suffering. But they were like, wait, a dog is sad? Like, and that's in the 19th century. Like, this is eternally a problem in this country that it's far easier for people to raise money for charities for, for, for pets than it is for, you know, the millions of children who are malnourished in this country. I really wish I could say I was shocked, but I live in the United States. Yeah, exactly. Like the, 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 the U.S., you know, was, was, was created on that model and just had more guns and racism. <laughs> right. The, looking over at the British, like, we learned from you. Yeah, it's um, a lot more hysterical, a lot more. We're, Americans are hysterical about everything. British people are hysterical about the wrong things. If there's an actual crisis, they're all going to die. And they're like, oh, stop making a big deal. We'll just put the kettle on. But if it's something that doesn't <laughs> matter at all, they lose their fucking minds. It's supposed to be this way. If you don't like it, get out. Yeah, exactly. Don't like it, leave. There's a door. I, I get that all the time here, and I'm just like, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> get me the fuck out of here. Um, now, uh, this is where he retired. He stayed in Kenya until his death in 1993. Um, but uh, there's also like weird notes, because obviously Kenya eventually got his independence from the British. And like the British consulate to Kenya wrote like uh, scathing letters to uh, like the local um, like ministry of police saying, don't let anything bad happen to Digby Tatum Order. Like <laughs> upon independence, like take care of the strange man at the umbrella that killed a whole bunch of people. Cause like people were legitimately worried there was gonna be a lot of vengeance going on. Um, but he had like police protection till the day he died. So that that tells me he did some fucked up shit. <laughs> yeah. Either that or Jomo Kenyatta was just a really big umbrella fan. Yeah, it's true. They got around. It's like being a watch guy. You just you end up in the orbit of other umbrella guys and you just sit around and shoot the shit about specific brands of umbrellas. Fair enough. Um, also, Mau Mau Rebellion is famously where Idi Amin cut his teeth doing horrible things in the name of the British Empire. So thanks, England. Um, uh, now, uh, he, did, he died, but uh, not before carrying on his family traditions of marrying off his daughter, Belinda Rose Tatum Mortar to the Duke Friedrich von Oldenburg, the great-great-grandson of Friedrich August II. So yeah, they're still doing this shit. <laughs> um, what I would say about this guy is that, that is interesting to me is that this definitely, like we talked about in the very beginning, strikes me as more of the life trajectory of someone from that background 100 years prior or 150 years prior. So the fact that this was well into you know the middle of the 20th century and that he didn't die until 1993, that makes him feel like in a way kind of last of a type if you will he really is i mean this this guy's sitting on his gigantic imperial estate in independent kenya around when grunge was becoming popular yeah i was gonna you say know? i mean like you and i you and i were alive when he was still kicking around kenya doing uh ethical things with animals and not so ethical things with other people 
Right. Notionally, apparently, yeah. allegedly. Allegedly. Sue me, Warder Estate. I don't care. Um, please don't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm but a humble podcast producer. Please don't sue me yeah. with Britain's awful libel laws. Uh, yeah, that is where they are. So you're fucked. Uh, <laughs> uh, we do a thing on this show called uh, Questions from the Legion. And uh, if you would like to ask us a question from the Legion, donate to the show, slide into my DMs, uh, send me an email, hit me up on Discord, uh, attach it to a tip of umbrella and jam it into the vision slit of my tank, and I will read it on air. And this one is, and I'm adding a caveat to this, uh, is what is the most disgusting thing you've ever drank? And it has to be something you're meant to drink. Like you can't be like, oh, I drank dip spit on accident one time. I added that second part because I know our listeners are want uh, awful things sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Do you have one that comes immediately to mind? Because I kind of do, but it's it's more for we'll call it circumstantial reasons. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> so as I've, I think I alluded to on Britnology before over on the Trash Future feed, my first job was working at McDonald's. Um, and one of the things that me and other people did after we smoked entirely too much weed in the freezer was uh, drink the syrup that came from like a bag of Pepsi. And uh, it, you know, the oh, Pepsi yeah. heavy, I guess we could call it. Uh, it was awful. I got sick uh, because, you know, you're drinking like, I don't know, a two liter of Pepsi in a mouthful. Um, yeah, don't do that. Just don't drink. Don't drink Pepsi heavy. Oh, God. All right. So I'll tell you. <laughs> I mine. was like 15. When I was in Korea, a friend of mine from from home, uh, who's she's Malay Cantonese speaker, uh, she was visiting some friends and she and her friends, uh, she had been traveling around a bit. So she was home in Malaysia and then in Hong Kong and then in Taiwan and then in Korea. And so we went out and got the sort of Korean equivalent of sashimi. But I think wherever our fish got butchered, like hadn't been sanitized because everyone in our dining party got sick from the food, like really, really sick. But the sickness didn't hit immediately. Um, and, uh, my friend had gotten me a gift in Taiwan of, um, it's a kind of baijo, if you're familiar with that, uh, it's it's sorghum liquor, it's traditional Chinese liquor. It's very, very strong flavor. Um, I think the the Taiwanese version is called Kaoliang or something like that, but I can't tell you off the top of my head. Um, and anyway, so I, I'd come home the next day and and the, the sickness hadn't hit yet. Right. And so I was like, fuck it, I'll try this, this liquor that she gave me. And I had a little bit, and I was like, oh, that's a pretty weird flavor. And I had some more, like, oh, that's a pretty weird flavor. I'm a little bit drunk now, it's still pretty weird. But then the sickness did hit. And so the best way I could describe it is imagine being, having the worst food poisoning you've ever had in your life, but the constant flavor in the back of your throat, in your mouth, et cetera, burping up, whatever, what have you, <laughs> is like the strongest, grossest, weirdest alcohol you've ever had in your life, which is baijo. And yeah, I... Oh God! It's just—I mean, no disrespect to 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 Chinese liquor distillers and all, but like, it just was this like a combination of circumstances that I never want to repeat ever again. Oh yeah, I mean, I've drank some—I guess you could say traditional uh, Armenian moonshine off the side of the road and it just tastes like chemistry. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, 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 something like that. It's, it's harsh more than anything else. It's not as weird of a flavor. Yeah, it just you know like I mean? it burns all the way to the back of your eyes, but you can't be like. No, I don't like this. No, I won't. I won't have this. I mean, like I, I've had, like I said, I've had, I've had, uh, in, you know, in Korea they make soju, in China, in Japan they make shochu, which is sort of like, like imagine sake but stronger. Oof. And I've had sake, like shochu that's been infused with all sorts of weird things, like ginseng shochu, aloe vera shochu, 
et cetera, et cetera. And like none of that, that was always a little bit intense, but it wasn't gross. It was just weird. And, and I'm pretty, I'm pretty open-minded about weird foods. Like I love durian. I've had natto in Japan and I, I thought it was fine. Like I've never, like, I suppose the weirdest food for me was always my mom tried to make escargot at home once when we lived in Germany and the smell made me like Ugh. deeply ill, like without even eating it, just the smell made me deeply ill. Um, for days after it was so bad. Uh, but like, I'm pretty, pretty good on weird foods, honestly. Like, if you put me in the Philippines and you're like, you, you have to eat balut, you can have anything else from Filipino cuisine, I'd eat balut, like, fine. But man, there's something about the combination of a really strong, weird flavor and then also already being sick that like will make it haunt your dreams for the rest of your life. So, definitely, if you're going to have Baijiu or some kind of form of it, Definitely uh make sure you eat something normal that you're used to before that has not is not gonna give you E. coli or whatever. Yeah, make sure you eat the fermented bean sprouts and just <laughs> completely fuck your insides. Just, just, just exactly. Just just plow through that <laughs> as much fiber as possible. Just fucking just just grind off the inside of your intestines. Scorched earth on your insides. Nate, uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, you can use this opportunity to plug all of your various podcasts, which are, are part of your extended universe. My extended universe, yeah, like I said, I'm I'm a little bit um I'm uncertain on whether I want to in- embrace that term, but uh, I am Embraced first and foremost the <laughs> yeah exactly I'm first and foremost the the uh, co-host and producer of What a Hell of a Way to Die, which is a podcast about military veterans, news culture from a left wing anti war perspective uh, with myself and Francis. I'm also the producer and co-host of Trash Future, a podcast about. Uh, well, about the tech industry and its serene morons and a lot of the financial crimes and general malfeasance going on in the world today and also British politics. Um, as you know, I am the producer of this, the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast, and I'm now the, my first time appearance, but hundreds, if not thousands of episodes of listening in the past. Um, I also produce a show called Kill James Bond, which is a anti-James Bond comedy slash film review podcast featuring Alice Caldwell-Kelly, Abigail Thorne, and Devin, uh, all very, very funny British people who present a unique perspective on the Bond franchise. And finally, I am the producer, well, co-producer with Milo Edwards of The Bottleman, which is Riley from Trash Future's Canadian Politics and Culture podcast, uh, which is basically... Um, what if Canada land actually got to the problems at the heart of Canada, which as they have defined it is actually not a country, but rather three oil companies in a trench coat. So <laughs> if any of those shows are interesting to you, if you go to my Twitter, which is at in these deserts, uh, you can find links to the Twitter profiles of each of those shows. So uh, please do check them out. And if they sound super interesting to you and you just desperately, desperately need to hear more of them and or me, just bear in mind that uh, they all have Patreons. You can get bonus content, as does this show, uh, which has a great Patreon and a bunch of benefits you should sign up for because it, uh, it lets Joe do the immense amount of work that he does to research each episode that we greatly appreciate. Thank you, Nate. Uh, and uh, check out all of those shows. Thank you for supporting this one. Buy my books. And uh, <laughs> I'm not good at selling myself. And until next time. Buy umbrellas and sharpen the tips, I guess. Exactly. You never know when you'll need it, especially if you're British. In the flatlands of Holland, there's a game that we play. And when they're down at the hog flats, then you know it's match day. It's 
Van Beer. Uh -huh.